Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Welcome everyone to Deep Drinks Podcast, this is where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. My name is Dave, and today we have John, Godless Engineer with us. Uh, John runs the popular YouTube channel, Godless Engineer, where he engages in atheist activism, uh, where he hopes to help those who are, who are losing or have lost their faith um, not feel so alone. Uh, John is a Jesus mythicist, which is a position that the story of Jesus uh, is a piece of mythology, possessing no substantial claims to historical fact. Uh, there are a few different flavors of Jesus mythicism, uh, which of, of which we will learn all about today. Uh, as you may know, Godless Engineer, you may know Godless Engineer from his appearances on The Line, Cosmic Skeptics Channel, Apologia, MythVision podcast, and many, many more. John and I started chatting <laughs> for the first time when I made some inflammatory remarks about Jesus mythicists on Twitter, uh, where I was taken onto John's show and stood trial for not knowing anything about the topic I was ridiculing. Uh, despite a few tense moments, we ended the conversation on friendly terms, uh, and now it's time to learn more about Jesus mythicism. So I welcome John Gleason, Godless Engineer, to Deep Drinks Podcast. Welcome, John. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I was uh, really excited when he asked me to, uh, you know, be to be interviewed by you on here. And I, I always love talking with people just about mythicism, but just in general, I love uh, interacting and uh, really uh, just, you know, engaging uh, with like-minded persons. Yeah, it's it's interesting, um, dude, because I was looking at, I'm not sure when you updated your about section on your YouTube channel, but I really liked how you mentioned that, you know, you when you first, when you first uh, started losing your faith, you felt really alone and you felt like you didn't have mm -hmm. anyone to kind of bounce your ideas off and stuff. And, and that's the kind of, is, is it still a driving force that, that kind of drives you forward in your YouTube channel to like create that environment for people to, to kind of feel, to kind of explore their faith and explore their uh, their lack of faith and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I always want to try to provide a sort of community or at least a, a space where people feel like they can, you know, ask questions. Even, even if they're, uh, you know, uh, a little inflammatory, sometimes I let that get the, be <laughs> the better of me, but um, I, I, I try to be a really good conversationalist and uh, just try to, uh, you know, educate people on, on different things, at least how I view the world. And, uh, you know, I listen to other people and what they say. Sometimes I adopt certain uh, points of view. Sometimes I, you know, I'm not convinced of it, so I, I reject it. And uh, it's always, uh, you know, having a good exchange of thoughts is uh, the way that you continue to grow and really figure out who you are. So, uh, you know, I, I try my best to provide that through any of my social media um, and, and I think I do a, a, a somewhat decent job of it. <laughs> has your, has your position on any one topic changed throughout your YouTube, uh, career? Like if you had any, through having these conversations with people, have you had like a shift in your perspective? Well, you know, um, I, I don't, I don't know what it was like for you, uh, if you were ever religious. Um, but, uh, yeah. coming <laughs> out of religion, <laughs> coming out of religion, I, you know, what am I trying to say here? Coming out of religion, I was, I was very angry, you know, like mm. I, I wasn't angry because I felt lied to or anything like that, but I, I, I felt angry just because it's like, you know, well, I don't believe in these things. 
And then, you know, I've got people that are coming at me saying, oh, you should believe in those things. And so it was kind of like spurring that kind of anger. And so, you know, I would I would post like cringy sort of I would make and post uh, cringy sort of atheist memes and everything like that. Yeah. And I, I think I, I've really softened in my messaging uh, for the most part, except for, you know, this past year when I, I've gone a little bit harder uh, at it again, uh, as far as the politics goes, it's not really so much the religion discussion that I've really gone hard with. It's, it's more politics that I've kind of taken like a, a pretty hard line position about, you know, being conservative or, or liberal. And, um, you know, as far as, as far as the conservatives here, like in the, in the United States, they're, they're getting a little bit uh, out of control. Uh, but as, as far as, <laughs> Like, really? Yes. <laughs> like, no shit. <laughs> oh, I've, I've noticed. <laughs> they seem quite reasonable. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, that's one. That's one big thing that I've changed is is how I uh, how I relate to religious people, how I relate to uh, you know other atheists in general. Trying, I, I do my best to try to set a good example of of how to you know, I guess, present yourself in, in a discussion, uh, whether that be, you know, having an open mind and, and gently talking to somebody about why they're wrong and stuff, or if it's, you know, taking a, a very hard line, we're not having this kind of discussion uh, on this topic uh, kind of position. And I guess being a little bit more of an asshole, because I think that, you know, there, there are definitely lines that you can draw as far as like, well, you know, I'll be I'll be reasonable and have conversations with you up until this point. And then if you cross that line, you know, I'm going to have to pull out the asshole uh, is, <laughs> yeah, is, how, yeah. is how I see it. So yeah. um, know, knowing where that line is for you is kind of important. I try to stress that for everybody, not not uh, not just to you know when to be an asshole, but like where is that line for you as far as when to stop the conversation as well? Uh, and so I, I, I do try to, you know, um, be a good, um, uh, role model, I guess, uh, for that kind of thing. Uh, it, because I, I, I always wanted somebody to look up to that would, you know, either, uh, that, that would be really confident in their position and would know when to take something seriously, when to laugh at it or when to be angry. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like if somebody has like a good example of like, well, you know, that, you know, th this, you know, really got him angry. And it's not so much that that person should get angry at it, too. But I, I want people to feel, you know, OK, that they're angry about something like within mm. within reason. You know, you could be angry about, you know, certain things and uh, you could express that anger, not, not necessarily in violent ways or anything like that, but you can definitely have strong messaging. You can uh, definitely let people know that you're not fucking around kind of thing. Um, sorry, I didn't even check with you. Is it okay to curse? Oh, <laughs> no fucking way. Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> no fucking way. No, this <laughs> yeah. um, just, I'm going to pour my drink because this is already getting good. So we are drinking Kraken, okay. a Kraken cream, you call it, right? Is that what it's called? Well, Crack yes, cracking cream soda is what I call it because it tastes. Me being a diabetic, uh, I I haven't had cream soda in the longest time, so this is the closest that I've tasted uh, like cream soda that hasn't been like you know sugar free cream soda. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I couldn't get the I couldn't get the sugar free, and I'm one of those weird people who who I 
I actually prefer the sugar-free versus the regular. So that that's I'm just yeah. weird like that. But I wanted to ask you, you set the tone, all right? Every guest sets uh -huh. the tone. How many shots am I putting in this bad boy? Just one, two, like uh, well, so how 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 big is the cup that you're putting it in? That big, like a pint. I pint would pot. I would do uh, between one or two. Uh, I think okay. I think between one or two shots is probably going to get you good. Oh oh oh! And uh, keep in mind, it is midday in Australia. I'll do two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, this show is like horrible for any type of dieting. Um, <laughs> yeah yeah because I'm, I'm like uh, i'm cutting down my booze intake and then it's like and then i'm like oh god i gotta i gotta drink this weekend and then you know it's impossible not to like um eat junk food after you've been drinking um so <laughs> <laughs> awesome well i did actually want to ask you um you mentioned you, you know i think everyone goes through those atheist i like to call it the um atheist edgelord days where you're like yeah where where you're like oh um religion lol and like you just rip on it the whole time um i've softened mm -hmm. a lot of my my approach as well i used to be a um a pentecostal youth pastor i was quite religious at one stage um and uh, i was quite angry as well but uh, you, you mentioned about how like you find people you kind of want to emulate and like when they know when to laugh when they know when to get angry when they know how to um uh you know to take things seriously who are they like for me i've got a i've got a picture of um who i call daddy hitchens christopher hitchens on the wall mm -hmm. um because I, I i don't agree with him i don't agree with a lot of what he said but i just i just fucking love his his wit like i just and he's a brilliant writer in some of the things he said so for me i've always loved christopher hitchens do you have anyone that you looked up to when you first uh started deconstructing your faith yeah i mean i i guess uh kind of the um the how, how's that drink <laughs> oh, it's actually really good. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <It's> really good. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I've tried it with other rums, and other rums don't taste uh, like uh, Kraken and Sprite do. Um, yeah. But um, so as far as my my role, like when I first came out, you know, uh, or, you know, came into my worldview of atheism, I, I mean, I guess I looked up to the, the classic Four Horsemen I guess you could say mm, of uh, yeah. you know you get you get maybe le a lot less of Dennett because he was more philosophy and I, you know at that time I was just like I'm not really trying to get my my head around like you know all the all the uh, deep philosophy that Dennett kind of goes into but he he was still important uh, and then you know you've got Hitchens and Harris and um, uh, Lauren oh Krauss was in a Four Horsemen uh, I believe it was the other. I think the other horseman might have been Dawkins. Uh, I'm yeah, not sure. Dawkins, yeah, it was Dawkins. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I, I mean, there, there were those people, and um, you know, I, I, I can't recall any, um, any any person in general that I saw like in debates or anything like that that would just laugh, like at certain claims or, or things. Maybe maybe Hitchens a little bit, um, and and probably. Um, Oh, uh, Stephen Fry. Uh, you know, yeah. there's a, there's actually a really good debate with uh, Christopher Hitchens, Stephen Fry against the Catholic Church. Oh yeah, and I I I love that one, and uh, so it was yeah, it was that was a really good debate. Um, and I'll put a link uh, in the description. You've, everyone's got to watch it. It's great. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, it's it's oh, really what, good. What I love about that one is he uses the uh, a, a, a um. A, a, a slur like a um for um 
homosexual, a homosexual slur uses the F slur mm -hmm. and it takes you off guard really hard, but he's using it in the context of like, this is what the Catholic church is essentially saying. He's like, mm -hmm. he's exposing, and I still feel really uncomfortable when I hear him say it, but at the same time, it's, it's brings to light the, the gravity of what the Catholic church was doing to a mass amount of people. Um, mm -hmm. and I was like, well, that, it's like, if there's any time, I'm not saying I do endorse using that slur, but if there's any time to in, endorse using that slur, I think that's probably the only time I've ever seen, I could ever be swayed on that opinion, but geez, it mm -hmm. was, um, it was brutal. And also I, I love in that, in, in that conversation where you can see Christopher Hitchens is engaging in a little bit of bad faith because the Catholic, not, no, I'm not saying this in a negative way. He's kind of poking the bear, right? Like when the lady gets up to like make some comments, she corrects him on a few things and he goes like, mm, yeah, I guess so. Like, but he was trying, he was driving his point home so hard. And I, and I like the fact that he can be, you know, honest like that. I, I just thought, I, I, I don't know. I love it. I'm going to agree with you hundred um, yeah. percent. Yeah. Well, and I, I guess that, you know, most of, uh, most of the interactions that, that I had where I was laughing, you know, at certain things just, uh, you know, ca came from a lot of like, uh, you know, the YouTube community watching, uh, you know, YouTube content creators. Uh, I mean, er, uh, early in those days, you know, um, like the, uh, amazing atheist, um, you know, he was, uh, he was pretty, he was pretty big on YouTube, but I mean, you had other people, um, like, uh, Jacqueline Glenn, uh, she was doing a mm. lot of content. Um, yeah, and yeah. And, and, and uh, there wasn't really, I didn't really see a lot of debates happening when I first was like sort of finding my way around. Uh, but you know, I, I just kind of found my own footing as far as like, you know, what, what, when, when it was, when I felt like it was okay to laugh at a particular claim and, uh, you know, there at first, I, I think that I probably didn't laugh too much. And it's only now in my, I guess, older age where I've heard the same shit, you know, day in and day out uh, every single day. And at some point you just gotta, you gotta start laughing at the ridiculous claims because there'd be a time where I was like, well, you know, I really don't know how to respond to this. How do I respond to it? So I'll, I'll go looking for either, uh, you know, information or videos or uh, debates or something like that, that would try to answer that question. Like uh, with the morality question, I, I went searching for that. And, you know, I found um, Sam Harris's moral landscape, which it, it that's a, that's a pretty good book. Um, I mean, in my opinion, Sam Harris has kind of gone off the rails somewhat lately, <laughs> but yeah, they, uh, they all know, seem to have, haven't they? They're, they're four yeah. horsemen. They've all, they're, they've all got their own little ticks. I guess yeah. I don't know about uh, Dennett, but <laughs> but I definitely know Dawkins and people have got beef with Dawkins and Harris at the moment. But they've yeah. got some good stuff still. But just yeah, yeah, like like the um, Sam Harris's moral landscape, I think provides a pretty good um, examination of like if we were to consider morality to be objective, you know what what would we base that in if it's not like religion. And so he kind of, he goes down that path of it. And so that gives you a really good foundation for, you know, looking at how even on, even on objective morality, you have all this subjectivity that underlies it. And so, you know, there was all that. And then, Oh, the big, uh, a big, um, you know, topic is of course, Christian nationalism. Um, and you know, there's, there's been several debates on that. Um, sa sadly, a lot of the debate of the debates concern, um, <laughs> Uh, David Silverman, which uh, has turned out to be kind of a, a shit show 
uh, he has. Uh, but you know, looking at all that, looking at at, at uh, you know cr- uh, creators of the same kind of caliber are kind of uh, what I guess crafted um, how how I engage uh, with with the opposition as well as uh, with uh, you know fellow uh, atheists out there. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, I've tried to I've really tried to take on the role of of trying to be somebody that you know, people feel like they can go out and have a drink with, which I mean, I've done on a few occasions, uh, you know, people mm. is like, we got to oh, have a beer. So do I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's, that's what this show is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, I actually wanted to, um, just mention too, I've recently read, uh, the fundamentals of ethics or listened to the audible version, sorry, um, by Russ Schaefer Launder. And it just more cemented my perspective that morality just seems to be like because he goes through every essentially moral theory, utilitarianism, um, Kant, uh, theories by Kant, um, Immanuel Kant, I think, um, just like a a lot of different, maybe I got that wrong, but a lot of different theories of ethics. And he just basically brings up, he talks about what they are, then brings up like the pros, the cons, um, what objections that people have, and then he moves on to the next one. And you're like, there, there, there seems to be no one real answer so when people like rip on um because a lot of people will will pull apart sam harris's book because he's like kind of like he begs the question where he goes well if we if we make morality objective and we use it based on well-being we can make it we can make it objective this way people will say well you're kind of just begging the question in regards to what morality is but i think that sam harris may be right there and that i don't think i'm kind of a moral anti-realist i just i don't think there is such a thing i don't think there's anything in nature you can point to and say there is morality here but I think that mm-hmm. if you were to build a moral framework, I think Sam Harris, uh, Sam, the, the the techniques Sam Harris lays out in the moral landscape are actually quite fantastic. Well, so for them to say that it's begging the question, I, I, if you wanted to say that, I, I think that in order to discuss morality in general, uh, you can, you have to start from an, an agreement as to what is your end goal. So for like uh, religious people, Christians in particular, their end goal is to follow what God says in their holy book, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's literally in, in the Bible that, um, anything that's sinful is basically stuff that doesn't glorify God or that God says is, is bad. Right. And then everything that's good are the commandments and directions by God. Right. So as long as uh, the end goal there would be to follow what God says is good and bad mm-hmm. and everything. So that's their end goal. Whereas like for me, uh, you know, the, this, um, you know, the well being of conscious creatures or whatever uh, that Sam Harris has in his book would be kind of similar to my end goal of, you know, trying to be a good person and, you know, not do harm to others uh, that, that, and, and, and try to make sure that the things that I do only help better my community, help better my, my position and the position of others around me and everything like that. So you have to have like an end goal in mind in order to make those kind of moral justifications about things like to, to mm. say one thing is good or bad, you have it's it's like it's good or bad with respect to what you yeah. you kind of you have to have that that end goal in mind. So mm. um, it's just that I don't have the same end goal as religious people, and for some reason mm. that's a problem for them. <laughs> well, it's interesting too because so when I when I have conversations with um, religious people and they say, "Where do you get your morality from?" or whatever, and um, like it's so easy to just see that they also don't get their morality from the Bible because as soon as you start bringing up segments in the Bible that 
they would disagree with, like slavery, taking the virgin women for yourself, um, killing the infants of the Amalekites, whatever. They go, they start making excuses. Oh, that was for a time. Or, oh, well, you were taking that out of context. What are you using? What, what's, what, what's inside you that's stopping you from accepting those verses as plain reading? Like something right. is inside you that you're going, mm, maybe it isn't a good idea to own other people as slavery. Mm, maybe it isn't a good idea to, to stone your unruly child at the corner of the town, like at the gates of the town. Like they, they're making, they make these uh, these uh, statements that they follow the Bible as objective morality. You point out what the Bible says and then they start, they use something else, something else inside them to determine like whether or not they agree with it or not. And then they start making yeah. excuses. It's like, you, you don't, you're not even objective. Like you say you are, <laughs> but you're not. <laughs> well, what, one of the most uncomfortable situations I've been in has been on a debate with uh, <laughs> Dr. Josh and I, and it was, it was Dr. It was me and Dr. Josh arguing against a couple of um, uh, uh, black Christians about slavery in the Bible. Oh uh, yeah. That would, I think I remember that one. Yeah, and a question came. It was like a super chat or something like that, and the host had to read it and ask them this question, and it was basically asking the two the two black guys, "Would you be godless engineer's slave if it was biblical slavery?" And like they they said yes. Like both of them were like, "Yeah, I'd be a slave." And I'm like, "I'm way too fucking southern for this." Can yeah, we just not Can we, Can, this, this like bad, bad optics, bad optics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't you there. can't you can't push back. You might you can't push back. Like, so I could beat you. I could beat you if you didn't know. <laughs> like, I can draw it all through you. Like, because it just looks so bad. Godless yeah, engineer no, wants to own black yeah, people as slaves. Like, oh. yeah, yeah. I I had to sit there and just be like, listen, I do not condone this. Like, I do not want to own anybody as slaves. Like I'm way too Alabama for this question. Okay. <laughs> I think that, um, that I think that it's, I think that's the only way you can, if you want to be consistent with like, I believe everything in the Bible, I think you have to bite the ball and go, yep. You know what? Slavery's is okay. Like, so I think that that's just what they were doing. Well, um, and the, the, the biblical uh, or the, the slavery apologetics, uh, is, is, uh, kind of in full force right now. Uh, for some reason, uh, the, the apologists, they just want to deny that there was chattel slavery in the, in the Bible or that God condoned chattel slavery. Mm. And they, they, they tie themselves up in knots all the time, trying to excuse like with saying, oh, well, that was for a different time, for a different place. And I'm like, well, I'm not saying that you should own slaves now. I'm saying that God thinks it's okay to own slaves because he directly says it. <laughs> yeah, I always used to, I like to ask them, like, so is owning someone as property a sin? And then they, they can't say yes, because like it was never changed in the Bible anywhere. Um you know, Jesus said, you know, I think it was Jesus said, um, or either Paul or Jesus in the New Testament, um, obey your masters, even the cruel ones. Um, slaves obey your masters, even the cruel ones. Um, so anyway, um, I actually wanted to quickly touch on, uh, before jumping into some mythicism stuff, I wanted to quickly touch on uh, your journey. So you grew up a Christian. Uh, yes. What type of Christian were you? Well, for uh, starting out, uh, I was Catholic. Uh, I went yeah. to private Catholic school up until about fourth grade. Um, and then when I started fifth grade, um, I wanted to get the fuck out of that place. So uh, I went <laughs> to public school. Um, and uh, so after that, I kind of bounced around like Southern 
Southern Baptist uh, and non-denominational churches. And I, I was, I would go in and out of being very religious. Uh, you know, there was at, at one point in my life, like I had three friends in the neighborhood, all of them super, super religious, right? Like they were, they were doing Bible studies and they were going to Wednesday night and Sunday morning uh, church uh, and um, which Wednesday night was the youth group. And then Sunday would be the regular church services. I almost never went to the Sunday church services because I just felt so out of place. It was, I was the only one that was going and everything. So I just, I felt out of place, but I was fine going to the Wednesday night uh, services where, I mean, we'd sing and then there'd be some Bible teaching where they cherry pick out of the Bible and then we'd sing some more and then we'd, you know, have dinner and go home. So, I mean, that was, that was pretty fun. If I, if I wanted to have friends in my area, I had to be religious in, in some kind of respect. So, um, you know, naturally that kind of peer pressure, I, I would get like really deep into faith. It, 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 at one point um, I was, I was pretty deep into like wanting to believe in Jesus or, or wanting to be a good Christian kid uh, that, you know, like I was going to the, these Christian rock band concerts and uh, I bought um I had bought this necklace that was three nails that were put in the shape of a cross. And so I like, I had that necklace and um, have you ever heard of the band DC talk? Yeah. 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 They, they had a uh, persecution porn book put out where it was just a collection of like Christians that had been persecuted for believing, you know, in, oh, in Jesus, not, not um, Jesus freaks. Is it? I uh, may have been. It's like martyrs uh, it, and stuff. Yes, yes, it was it yeah. was martyrs. Um, yeah. it was like yeah, a, is, a whole bunch is. of stories. Yeah, and so like I had bought that and I had read it and it was like all emotional and stuff. And um, it wasn't until I um, I was with uh my my first well I, she wasn't my my wife at that point but my first wife my ex wife. Um, and you know, she kind of challenged me a little bit on it. I had never been the type of person to judge somebody just because they believe differently than me. And uh, maybe that's just because I wasn't all that into like, you know, believing in, in the religious aspect of it. Like I, I had been taught just as a, um, a fact of reality that God exists. Jesus is his son and you got to suck his dick in order to get into heaven. And so, <laughs> you, you, okay. You, yep. <laughs> so, I've never heard it uh, said like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird form uh, of Christianity. I've never yeah. been. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, as a as as like a sixteen year old kid, I wasn't thinking that way. But <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. In yeah. retrospect, that's that's kind of what it was. But yeah. Uh, so. You know, I, I'd never been one to really judge other people for for not believing like I did. So, like in high school, I remember having a girlfriend that was like Wiccan, and you know, I kind of rolled my eyes whenever she she did some like weird Wicca stuff. But I never judged her for it. And I mean, I, I think I get that from my dad because my parents were uh, like my mom and my stepfather. They were they were pretty bad as far as like judging other people and all this other stuff. Plus it being the South, there was all this like inherent racism that was just running rampant uh, all over the place that I didn't even realize until like I stepped out of that bubble and I, I realized like how bad it was. But uh, so with my, my ex-wife um, you know, she didn't necessarily, she didn't believe uh, she, she wasn't a believer 
And so she kind of challenged me on a few things and I had to really sit there and contemplate like what I believe. And she was no, she, she never like pushed anything on me or anything like that. But um, it did get to the point where, you know, I was really struggling with it. And um, I just, uh, I, I confided in one of my friends, I, I used to play in a softball church league. Right. And uh, I confided in him about it. And uh, one night after a softball practice, uh, you know, he said to me, if you don't believe in the Bible from uh, from cover to cover, that it's all literally true, then you're not a real Christian. And so that's like one of the biggest things that I remember in my past. And uh, th- because it was that night that I was like, well, I guess I'm not a real Christian. I mean, obviously now I know that's like a no true Scotsman fallacy that it really shouldn't have convinced me away from my position. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it kind of did because I was sitting there like, well, what do I believe? Do I believe in a God? Like, do I think that there could be something out there that exists? And so I mm-hmm. really had to do a lot of introspection into what I believed, why I believed it. And, you know, I spent a lot of time like looking at the hard questions of like, you know, morality, uh, what evidence we have of God, uh, evidence for Jesus and all this other stuff. Uh, went looking through all of that and I came out the other end of it, like uh, probably after about six months, six, six to nine months uh, of really kind of going back and forth. I had to admit to myself that I didn't believe in God anymore. And that was probably the hardest thing that I did uh, was admitting that I'm an atheist because, you know, I'd been brought up thinking that you had to believe in God in order to be a good person. Like you had to do what the Bible tells you, or you have to uh, basically, what would Jesus do? You know, if you're not doing Mm. what you think Jesus would do, then you're probably going to hell. And, you know, I had that racking around my brain for like a good portion of my life. And so to actually admit to myself that I didn't believe anymore, that was a really big hurdle for me to get over. So, uh, you know, I, I, I eventually got over it and I, I, I was fine with it. I accepted it. And, um, then that's when problems started (laughs) with like family members and everything. Uh, like I, I remember, you know, of course this was early. So, you know, cringy atheist kind of saying inflammatory things. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I said I said a few things that upset some family members and they ended up unfriending me on Facebook and all this other stuff. And so that's when uh, that's when I created uh, Godless Engineer. It was, a, it was an outlet so that I could, you know, uh, speak my mind about things and, and reply and, uh, you know, have my voice heard and uh, not have to worry about my family getting pissed off at me. Yeah, that's interesting. Um I had a I had a similar experience when you had that moment of uh, a new tr- new no true Scotsman fallacy, but you had that moment where you're like, well, am I a Christian if I don't believe the whole Bible? And and um, they got you thinking because I I had a moment like that when I was talking to a lady at the church and I was talking about I was reading the Bible through again and all the New Testament and I said I got up to the scripture in in two Timothy um, I'll just read it. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. And I, I mentioned this to her, and she said, oh, well, that was for a time. And, that was, and she explained the whole you know, apologetics there were, there were, you know, men and women were separated. She'd lean over the aisle. She'd interrupt because she didn't understand because they weren't educated back then. And, I, and, and, but that's not, 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 not now it's not for the time. Right. And, and I was like, well, no, it says it, it says, it says, it says the reason it says for Adam was formed first, then Eve and mm-hmm. Adam was not deceived. Women were deceived. So that's still true today. And then it says, 
the only and then it says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. And I was like, the, the, those reasons are still there. Like it's still, and, and I don't agree right. with that. I, and I was like, I, I think women should be. I, I'm all for equality. Like I think women should be able to. And I just saw that what she was saying, and and at the same time she would say that, you know, homosexuality is a sin. And one of my dear friends who I went through uh, Bible college, uh, ministry college with, uh, he was closeted for 45 years and he recently came out. And um, and I'm looking, I'm like, man, he's, he, he's like, his whole life has kind of been screwed because he thinks that homosexuality is a sin. They're not saying that was for a time. They're saying, no, that's still relevant today. But then there's a verse clearly here and they're saying, no, that's that's for a time. And, and that was for me. I went away and going, okay, I need to think about this because I obviously disagree with the Bible. I need to fix myself. Like I need to work out why I disagree with the Bible and go on. and for me that was like a little, a little like why do I disagree with the Bible? Like is something wrong with me? Like and it was interesting. Um, that's it that happened for me as well, like that. Did you? Sorry, go. Oh well, I, I was just getting because I, I I remember you saying that you were uh, Pentecostal, right? Pentecostal mm. preacher. Uh, mm. Were were you the 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 crazy snake handler kind of Pentecostal? No, or? no, no. We don't have no. that. Okay. That's that's like a that's like that's like an American phenomenon. I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, sadly, I, I can yeah. totally see that. <laughs> we have like the you know we 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 were like Hillsong um, kind of oh, okay. churches. We got the Hillsong conference. We did speaking in tongues. We did um, laying on of hands. I, I remember coming off stage once um, after preaching um, and. It's always good when you preached about the power of God, preached about what happened in the Bible and Acts. And I ran up to, I was a youth pastor. I ran up to one of the youth who was probably, he was only a year younger than me. So he was like a leader and it was an altar call. And I went up to him and I grabbed, like he was like laying his hand, hands up like this, like in the worship moment. And I grabbed him, like I touched his face like this to pray for him, which is what I felt the spirit led me to do. And he flew backwards like he's like, and passed out. Just like he grabbed him and he just on the ground. And so it was like, I got the power, <laughs> but it was, it was really, you know, there was a lot of like really weird experiences like that. Um, or yeah. there was, you know, moments of like people having like what looked like seizures for hours and mm -hmm. we would just like laugh at them and like carry them to the next prayer room and pray for them. Like it was bizarre, bizarre stuff. Yeah. I, so as a kid, I was, I was always pretty introverted. And so I remember going to this one church, uh, here and like, um, uh, they they asked uh, they asked the crowd because it was like a it was like a youth service they asked the crowd like uh you know if there's anybody struggling with anything raise your hands and so i was like yeah i struggle with shit and so they're like why don't y'all come on up here and pray for jesus uh you know to help you out or something and um i i, I you know i didn't want to go up there like i was i was a little embarrassed for one but i was also very introverted and so like they, they noticed that I raised my hand, but it didn't come up. And so they're like, why didn't you go up there? And I'm like, uh, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't want to. And so they're like, they like called in reinforcements. And so imagine me, a, a teenager. And then there's like eight people surrounding me, putting their hands on me, praying. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there like, okay. Yeah. You made it worse this by not actually... going to the front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I did. Like, I didn't. Yeah. Like, I didn't go up to the front for a reason, guys. There's no reason to form this little circle around me right now. Yeah. Not possessed. <laughs> yeah. 
No, they, that's the um. They, they did that. So I used to do the altar calls where you know you'd go raise your hand, and then they'd raise a hand like everyone close, and then come at the front. But I found a technique that worked even better, and that is to get people at the front because you. That's that. My job as a preacher was to get people to walk to the end of the diving board and to jump off into the Holy Spirit. That's what we we believe. That's what we taught. So I would say to them, okay, everyone, everyone to close their eyes, raise their hand, and then, and I was like, okay, you know, and pray to God, blah blah blah, and then I was like, God wants you to know that he loves you and then i was like if you feel that you need prayer for something i want you to raise your hand um and then uh people a few scattered hands would go up and then you'd say um and then you'd say okay um uh if you feel like your heart beating faster that's god calling you god's calling you so you start reaffirming their feelings and then you go i'm going to count to three and I want everyone to raise their hands. And I'd say, one, God loves you. He, he He's there for you. He cares for you, blah, 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 blah. Two, God's pulling on your heart. He's calling you. The angels of heaven are blah, 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 blah. I'm even getting goosebumps now just thinking about it. Two, two, and then I'd go, to, and three, raise your hands, and boom, all these hands would go up. And then I'd be like, okay, everyone's raised their hands. I want you to come up the front. There's so many of you, so many. So I'm, I'm reaffirming. There's so many of you who raised your hands. You're not going to be alone. Come up the front. And that act of people getting up out of their seats, taking a step out in front of a crowd of a hundred, couple, couple hundred people, is such a euphoric uh, feeling of like adrenaline, and 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 it's scary. And um, but you feel safe, and and you know it's, you know. If there was no such thing as, I can see how, you know, if it, if the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster did something similar, it, I could see how people would have similar reactions um, to that if they truly believed it. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's 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 interesting to to, to kind of deconstruct all that. Um, did you have um, when you when you left your faith? Did you have, did you have like a strong, like did you? Did you find it quite hard emotionally or did you? I mean, it wasn't, um, it wasn't all that hard emotionally for me, like leaving the faith. But I mean, um, I, I think that the, the reason for that is that I wasn't all that emotionally tied to my faith. Like, you know, I had, I had grown up believing, you know, as a fact of reality, it, it, it's um, I, I guess the, the, the best way that I could compare it is like um, if, if, if you grew up believing that, um, uh, let, let's say that um, all cars are red, you know, and then, you know, you, you, you figure out, well, I don't, I don't believe that all cars are red. There are some blue cars out there or something like that. And uh, you know, it's just, Oh, I, I totally accept that there are blue cars now. Uh, so I wasn't really uh, emotionally tied, you know, to, to believing in God, uh, despite the fact that I would go in and out, you know, of, having these, these bouts of deep belief where I definitely was emotionally tied to it. But I think that that was more about like my clinical depression rather than actually being like emotionally to, uh, tied to it. And so um, I, 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 at the point where I was questioning things, I definitely was not all that emotionally tied to it. So it really didn't affect me emotionally. Mm. Wow. Okay. That's that's interesting. Um, so you start this YouTube channel uh, to as an outlet uh, for your uh, your newfound beliefs. When do you become a Jesus mythicist? Oh, it wouldn't be for maybe a few years. Um, you know, afterwards. Uh, I, I, well, it was a few years after I became an atheist that I uh, started doubting. You know whether or not Jesus exi existed, and then I would say that I shored up my my personal uh, view of it. 
you know, maybe a year or so after, you know, I started kind of looking at, at, at all of the literature about it. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the way that that happened was that, you know, uh, I, I was, Facebook was where it was at like 2013, 2014 kind of atheism, at least the, 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 where I was most active at was Facebook. Right. And so what I would do is I'd go into these Facebook groups and I've had these discussions, you know, I'd discuss, you know, what I thought about, you know, different aspects of, of, um, you know, arguments against, uh, God existing or Jesus. And so it got to this one point where we, they were talking about, you know, like evidence for Jesus. And I'm like, surely there's a historical evidence for Jesus. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, if, if that, you know, he, he surely existed. So there's got to be some kind of evidence that points to his existence. And I had somebody challenge me on that. Like, well, why don't you provide me the evidence? And so I went looking for it. And I mean, like I found the pilot stone, but I was, you know, of course, that doesn't prove that Jesus existed. That just proves that pilot existed. And, and that says mm. nothing about whether or not Jesus existed. And, um, you know, so I went looking around for, you know, different pieces of evidence and I really didn't find any good pieces of evidence, but what I did, uh, you know, stumble upon was, uh, David Fitzgerald's 10 Christian lies, um, or it was nailed, uh, 10 Christian lies. So I, I stumbled upon that book and I read it. Um, and, uh, I, I think I eventually listened to the audio book too. Uh, and I listened to David Fitzgerald talk about it. And then that kind of led me down the path of like, well, who are these other people that are saying this? And that led me to Richard Carrier, Randall Helms, Randall. I don't think Randall Helms is a mythicist, but he's, he's got great, uh, books analyzing like the new Testament and where all of the stories and everything like that for Jesus come, uh, come from. Uh, and, uh, which is the old Testament scriptures. Uh, and, and so it just kind of led me down this path of, you know, uh, I guess, um, sort of taking a different look at the historicity of Jesus. And, um, I came away like analyzing the evidence, looking at both sides, uh, the arguments that the historicists put forth and the arguments that mythicists put forth. And I just, I, I found that the mythicist arguments seem to make a lot more sense uh, given the evidence that we have than the historicist argument. I felt the historicist arguments were a lot more strained and they had to make more uh, speculative statements, uh, more ad hoc uh, reasoning and, and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I just had to sit there again, uh, another point in my life where I was just like, well, I, I guess I just don't believe that Jesus, you know, existed in the first place. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I came into that position. Um, you know, I, I can't remember when the first piece of content uh, that I started making on that was um, it was probably around 2014 or 2015 uh, timeframe there. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, you know, I start I started making content on it. Just kind of, you know, just kind of kept going with it. Mm. as far as like researching into it and really diving into the nitty gritty details of, of the actual arguments for and against. Well, I think your first problem was you needed to look for Jesus in your heart because that's where oh, Jesus shit. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, he's that's in where my historical Jesus is. <laughs> um, so a lot of people, um, I, I was at a staff party the other week and they go, oh, 
you know, who are you interviewing next? And I said, um, and none of these people are super religious. Well, a couple of guys are, but um, and I go, oh, I'm, I'm interviewing um, a Jesus mythicist. And they said, what's that? And I said, and I was trying to explain it to them. And they're looking at me like, that's interesting. That's an interesting idea. And like, they've never heard it before. So I was, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could give us like a brief introduction to what, because what mythicism is, because you mentioned too, there's also, there's the cringy, derp type of mythicist um mm-hmm. and then there's the scholarly um type of mythicist so i was wondering if you give us a brief introduction of what the type of mythicism you believe in or you subscribe to sorry i should say right yeah yeah um so for me the kind of mythicism uh that i subscribe to is is called minimal mythicism um uh, or, or typically called the minimal mythicist hypothesis and that's basically like what's the minimal case that would be needed in order for uh you know all of the evidence to make sense if jesus uh didn't exist in history and uh basically what that position is is that uh of course the gospels are all uh fictional accounts of uh this celestial being known as jesus and Paul, uh, he believed in a celestial version of Jesus. That was the only kind of Jesus that he knew. And, um, you know, the, this, the celestial Jesus is actually an archangel in Jewish, uh, in Jewish ideology that it is meant to redeem the Jewish people uh, for, you know, their sins and, and all that and um, basically allow them to um, come, uh, basically allow them to, get into paradise or get into heaven, absolve them of all their sins so that they're not like suffering or whatnot anymore. Um, and so uh, that, that's, that's, that's pretty much a, a good, a good uh, description of it. It's um, you know, it's, it's typically based in um, you know, actual evidence that we have, whether mm. that be Paul's epistles, uh, other, other writings that we have from the time, and uh, an acknowledgement that there are writings that we no longer have, but we do have indications of them existing in physical documents, like like empirical uh, evidence that we have that they definitely did exist. Um, and so putting all of that together and kind of, you know, uh, acknowledging that New Testament studies right now is a, a bit, um, broken in that you have primarily uh, Christians that are investigating this historical question. Um, you're going to have a lot of religious bias that comes into play here. And um, I've actually been analyzing like scholars that are commonly uh, brought up and suggested, and uh, all of them uh, seem to be uh, theologically committed for one reason or another uh, to their faith. So it's mm. kind of hard to expect good arguments and, and evidence out of them. But uh, as far as minimal mythicism goes, uh, minimal mythicism goes, it's, you know, there's a celestial Jesus. Paul had visions of this celestial Jesus, uh, other people as well, not just Paul, but other people as well had celestial visions of this Jesus that supposedly absolved the sins um, through his death and resurrection. And uh, then later people, built historical stories upon this celestial Jesus make, uh, uh, you know, uh, making him into a historical figure. And that's what we have today. So you would, so I just want to touch, touch on a few of those things just so I better understand. So do you subscribe to the standard dates for um, the epistles and the gospels? So I think the epistles, when were the epistles written? Uh, 50, 20 years after Jesus? 
Yeah, so it's between, I believe it's between 55 and like 65 or something like that, that the epistles were written, at least the authentic and ones. So traditionally, traditionally, um, the non the non mythicist position is Jesus was crucified in 30, 30 to 33 AD, right? Oh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, CE. Depending on which gospel you read, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, see, yeah, yeah. So then you've got, um, and then you've got the epistles, which were written first, which were written fifteen uh, or twenty-five years later. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Then you have yeah. Mark, which was written thirty to forty years after the fact, I think. Yeah. And then uh, Matthew and Luke were written around the same time, and then John was our latest gospel, written ninety-five CE. Well, well. Uh, so the only thing that I disagree with <laughs> is Matthew and Luke being written at the same time. Matthew okay. was written first, and then Luke was written after Matthew. Um, okay, because there, there are portions of Matthew, like Matthew's Greek that appear in Luke's gospel. And so okay. the only way that that could happen is that Luke was copying from Matthew. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, okay. So when you say, uh, so what my understanding of mythicism was before we originally spoke, um, was that, um, Jesus isn't real lol. Okay, so that's like the the idea I had. So when you say celestial being, what does that mean? Um, well, so uh, Jewish ideology, and if you go back and um, re or at least maybe think about the Old Testament, uh, celestial beings are all over the place uh, in uh, in the Old Testament and uh, Jewish theology, and so the. The, the, uh, the idea is is that this um, celestial Jesus is just another uh, angel well specifically uh, God's what he considers to be the firstborn son firstborn son God's logos um, he's a he like this this isn't just some random celestial being he's definitely an important celestial being in in the pantheon of celestial beings in in Judaism but um, he's just he, he's a celestial being that uh, his role is to absolve uh, you know, the Jewish people of their sins or come back and save them, basically save that remnant that's always being discussed about in the Old Testament. So I was something that I found quite interesting um, when I was reading Richard Carrier's book um, on the history of Jesus. I think it's called links in the description for all resources, by the way, um, is he mentioned something about Isaiah 53. Um, and I think he, it seems as though he subscribes to, that being a reference to Jesus as the Messiah, where I thought that the scholarly consensus at the moment, unless you talk to a fundamentalist, was that um, the suffering servant was Israel. Well, so there's a big there's a big distinction to make here. Like there's there's nuance. Um, so the the two questions that we need to ask about Isaiah 53: What did the original author mean? Like what was his intent with it? And then the yeah. other question is what did later Jewish uh, and then eventually Jewish Christians think about that particular section? Okay. So to answer your first question, uh, I, I think that the, the scholarly um, uh, consensus is, is definitely that the, the suffering servant is Israel. That's who it was originally meaning. But when you go on later to the first century um, uh, BCE, uh, and onward, you have this sort of a reinterpretation of Isaiah 53 uh, that seem that, where they're taking it to be an indication of like the Messiah. Like th this is what uh, the Messiah okay. is supposed to do. And, and is, is, the, that in, is that in like uh, um, 
is that in like Jewish sources that are outside of the Hebrew Bible, or is that within the Hebrew Bible? Well, no, it, it's uh, it's from uh, so as far as Jewish sources go that that take on that particular interpretation, uh, you have the Talmud, uh, which mm-hmm. admittedly was written hundreds of years afterwards, but. Uh, the thing is, is that it it seems highly in, 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 uh, plausible that the Jews would come up with an interpretation of Isaiah 53 that would directly coincide with what the Christians were saying and not even mention the Christians, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or, or mention Jesus with respect to Isaiah 53. So the, the Talmud actually has a, a Messiah like theology contained within it that includes uh, Isaiah 53 as being an indication of what's to happen to the Messiah, because in the Talmud in, in Jewish theology, the Messiah is actually two people. You have uh, one Messiah that is to die, right, for the sins of the Israelite people, and then there's another Messiah that comes in, resurrects that first one, and uh, saves the day. And so with uh, Christian theology, all you have to do is merge those two into one, and you have Jesus. And yeah. so it's it's literally like there's a split in uh in two in different sects of Jews that one one is the more orthodox I guess version of of Judaism that that continues on to today and then the other uh, the other uh, split is uh, what eventually turns into Christianity, um and so we have evidence in both Judaism and in Christianity that they were they were interpreting Isaiah fifty three by you know the first century AD um, to be about the Messiah. So those are the two important questions that you have to ask with Isaiah 53 and sort of make the distinction between the two. Mm. I've heard um, I've heard I think Bart Ehrman and um, I think in Deborah Grace's book Crucifying the Bible, she mentioned how the the, the, the Messiah was supposed to be like a king, like like a, an, an earthly mm-hmm. king that like destroyed Israel's enemies and stuff. And that's why Jesus didn't fit that because obviously he didn't. Um, and the Christians have reinterpreted it to be like demons and, and he saved the world through their sins or something rather than what it was originally. What do you think about that? Um, well, so we, we, we definitely have like real evidence of the Jews interpreting uh, the Messiah to be that way because, you know, we have uh, in uh, preserved in Josephus, we've got several different failed messiahs that were trying to be those conqueror messiahs. And um, the, the, the big difference is, is that, um, you know, whereas, you know, these, these physical uh, uh, conquering messiahs all failed. Jesus is the only Messiah that supposedly, you know, through his death, even though he also died, which not all of the Messiahs like that Josephus records died. Like the Egyptian is one that, that doesn't, I don't think that he's recorded as dying. He just sort of abandons, you know, his, his, his whole campaign. But, um, you know, you have Jesus through his death is, is completing this uh, promise that God had made in the old Testament. And uh, the the thing that you got to keep in mind here is that the beliefs of the Jewish people were not monolithic. A mm. lot like Bart Bart Ehrman and and other scholars like him will will try to focus on this idea that the Jews thought the, that the Messiah was supposed to be a conqueror. Well, that's somewhat true because there were Jews that believed that, and that yeah, some been, Jews, yeah. 
Right. That may have been the mainstream view of the Messiah, but it definitely wasn't like all Jews thought this. Mm. And so when you consider that there were different groups out there, like the Essenes, uh, who had wildly different ideas than the Orthodox or the mainstream Jewish uh, beliefs, um, you'll see that it, it it's very likely that there was a group out there that considered the Messiah to be the celestial uh, figure that wasn't supposed to like defeat the Romans or anything like that, but he was supposed to defeat uh, the devil. He was supposed to, mm. because, and that, that comes from Zoroastrianism, right? They were integrating Zoroastrianism uh, into the Jewish belief. And that's where you get the devil from. And well, so yeah, the devil, the devil makes a much bigger appearance in the new Testament and God's right. missing. God's not really there. Um, right. Yeah. Well, and and that's and that's because in in um there's this big syncretism with Judaism and these other surrounding pagan beliefs, and one of those pagan beliefs is Zoroastrianism. And what they get from Zoroastrianism is the burning hellfire uh place where you go if you're bad, and you have this uh, ultimate enemy of God being the devil. And so when they were in when they were syncretizing all these different pagan beliefs, including Zoroastrianism, they ended up with this devil figure. And I mean, the devil figure is not like uh, this this physical presence like here on Earth. Like it's not the Romans or anything like that. It's it's this celestial uh, sort of presence that that Jesus is supposed to, you know, uh, conquer. And he's and they interpreted their Old Testament scriptures. They re or uh, I should say they reinterpreted their Old Testament scriptures to seem to indicate that this uh, this Messiah was to die and overcome death by resurrecting, therefore defeating like the devil uh, in that mm. way. And so there's 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 a lot of reinterpretation and I, I, just to get back around to it, you have to understand that Jewish uh, early Jewish beliefs were not monolithic. They mm. had a, a diverse set of beliefs, and it's uh, very very plausible that this was one of them. And there's there's a lot of different references that we can come up with where you know you have these early Christians and Jewish Christians that believed in these you know celestial beings, like the fact that the devil resides. Uh, in the uh, the devil and his demons reside in the lower part of the heavens, which would be right on top of the firmament. Um, even Paul himself says that the devil controls the world. Uh, he's the prince of the air, or uh, he's the ruler of this uh, of this uh, era or age, uh, ruler of this world. Uh, that that's that's how he describes the devil. So um, mm. the, the the these these ideas, while they may seem weird they wouldn't have seemed weird to first century Jews and Jewish Christians. Interesting. Yeah. I, I find that um, uh, um, Michael Granaldo, um, who I've had on the brilliant um, philosophizer and history um, teacher, he, he said that um, he said to me, he said, um, the opera uh, people of the first century or, or antiquity um, were, were in a different universe than us. Like they, 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 their references, their thinking, everything was so different. It's almost impossible to just take a layman's perspective and view view the stuff that you read and say, "Oh, that's what they thought," because it's a different universe. It's a completely different universe. It's just it's so different. Yeah, um, and it, so it always amazes me when you have people that say, "Oh." you know, they wouldn't have believed this thing. Like you have a lot of apologists. I believe even Bart Ehrman uh, is known to, to say this, that the early Jews 
uh, and Jewish Christians, they wouldn't have believed in a suffering and dying Messiah. But it's very obvious that they would have because they did, <laughs> you know, and yeah. and the, the the fact that they they lived it, like they had a totally different concept of how this universe was constructed back then and what was real and what wasn't. And uh, I think once you consider that and you kind of step outside of this idea that, you know, that what makes sense to you is what are the only things that would make sense to these early Jews and Jewish Christians. I think once you step outside of that, you can, you can understand how, Oh yeah, definitely. They would believe in ghosts in your blood. You know, I mean, they, you know, they believe in crazy things like that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'm going to, I'm pouring myself, I'm putting another shot down into this glass, <laughs> pouring some more Sprite and I'm going to, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just glad that you, you like it enough to where you'll have. Oh some. dude, it's, it's actually really delicious and I'm enjoying this. It's giving me good buzz. Um, I'm going to, uh, I know that when we spoke for the first time you mentioned, um, some scriptures. So, um, I'm going to ask, I want to ask you now. Okay. So let's say I'm someone who's just heard this, listened to this podcast and they just heard the mythicist theory for the first time or idea hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Um, the, and they're going, okay, where, okay, where, where is John getting these ideas? Um, and you mentioned Paul. I thought maybe we could start with Paul. Why do you think Paul is talking about a celestial Jesus? Well, um, so for one thing, there's no reference in Paul that unambiguously uh, talks about Jesus as a historical figure. Um, and uh, there, there are there are different passages where, you know, uh, Paul talks about Jesus being born and all this other stuff. But the problem with that is and, and you have to do you do have to get a little bit into the Greek um, and, 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 uh, and understand what the Greek words that he used uh, meant. Um, but as well, far as well, like, why would you, why would you do that when Jesus was the wrote in English and he was the greatest American that had ever lived? <laughs> you know, there you go. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Mythicism defeated. <laughs> yeah. Why go to the Greek when you can just read it in English? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but but uh, you know the, the Greek interlinear texts are easy to find on on the web, and uh, you know you can even get whole ass books that have the Greek interlinear in it, and you can see what words are used, how those words are used uh, in the Cohen Greek, and everything like that. <clears throat> you can also find um, uh, places where Paul talks about other people being born where he uses a, a completely different word for being born that's more explicitly about being born than it is about uh, – than, than the word is uh, what, that he uses to talk about Jesus' birth. The, the word that he uses to talk about Jesus' birth is more like he came to be, like, like he, he just sort of uh, manifested in some kind of way. Not exactly the way – because like when you talk about somebody being born, you don't say, oh, yeah, that guy manifested one day in 1984. Mm. You know, you don't talk about him like that. Uh, but Paul, when he talks about Jesus' birth, he normally talks about it as if Jesus' body was manufactured in some kind of fashion. So th there's that. And um, then if you look in Galatians 1.11 – you'll actually find that uh, Paul separates himself completely from uh, any historical sourcing. He, he, he claims that he did not get any of this information about Jesus from man. He only got it from 
uh, reading the scriptures and then uh, in uh, in other places he he gets it from um, uh, visions. Mm. Um, so those are he the says, two places. Huh? He says, I'm just reading it out. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. That's right. the NIV translation. Yes. Uh, so the the God and the gospel being the death and uh, the resurrection uh, and the absolution of sins that that Jesus provides, right? Like the basic theology of Christianity uh, 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 of, of how Jesus's death absolves sins and everything like mm. that. And that's uh, that that's what he's talking about there. So uh, a lot of people push back on that by saying, well, you think Paul was the first Christian or you think that Paul didn't hear about Jesus from other people. Mm. And uh, obviously I don't think that because uh, Paul talks about, uh, persecuting Christians before him. So obviously he had some kind of interaction with them. But the important part here is that uh, Paul was saying that the, the despite anything that he had heard before, the things that he know he knows are true about Jesus and his his death, his resurrection, his absolution of sins, all of that is due to um, you know having visions of Jesus and reading the scriptures and being guided by this celestial form of Jesus. And so that, that that's why I think that Paul only ever mentions a celestial Jesus is because he's never explicit about getting any kind of information from anybody on earth or referencing anybody on earth about Jesus. So it, it seems to me like there's uh, more parsimonious explanations for the very few verses that you can pull out uh, about uh, you know, Jesus that Paul mentions and uh, you, you can actually make a better case on the idea that he's talking about a celestial version or at least maybe not a celestial version, but just that he's not talking about a historical reference to Jesus. And so okay. it seems, it seems like Paul is completely separated himself from any kind mm. of history that, that would normally be done. Okay. So is, is, uh, is so the road to Damascus, um, for, for those who don't know, it's when um, Paul had this experience, um, mm -hmm. blinding light. It, it sounds like a seizure or some sort of um, we have some medical ideas of what it might have been, um, at the time. Um, but he was he was on the road to he was persecuting Christians, right? He was um, mm -hmm. um, charging them or doing or doing whatever he was doing or, or killing them. I'm not sure exactly what he was doing. Um, when he was named Saul, uh, mm -hmm. So, so how do you think the Christian sex started? What what was Christianity at that time, or do you think it just was a branch that was getting more and more popular, a, a branch of Judaism that was getting more popular because of this uh, this fort, well, this idea of like the coming Messiah? Yes. Well, so okay. what you've uh, what you've got is you've got the Jews being promised by God in the Old Testament, you know, to be saved. That, that that God like there's several different references in the Old Testament that you could definitely peg as talking about at least Jesus and and what he's supposed to do like you know God is supposed to save his remnant and all this other stuff and so you've got this big lead up to it and then nothing happens and so what you end up with is you know right there first century BCE and first century AD you you seem to have this uh, uh, revolution in Jewish thought where they're trying to syncretize uh, 
Jewish ideas with surrounding pagan and Hellenistic ideas. And uh, we, we have evidence of this from the Jews themselves in the form of Philo of Alexandria. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, you know, he talks about his logos, which is described in the exact same ways that Paul describes Jesus. And the logos uh, under Philo's um, identification of him is an archangel in Jewish ideology that is supposed to, uh, you know, provide salvation for the Jewish people. Like he's the guy that's supposed to do that. And then you have uh, Paul talking about Jesus in the exact same way that Philo's talking about his logos. Uh, you know, in the Gospel of John, you even have uh, the author calling Jesus the logos, talking about how he is the logos, how he is the word. Like, uh, what was the first line in John? Um, something about the word, the word being with God or whatnot. Um, and so th there's this whole idea of, uh, in both Paul and in like later gospel, like the gospel of John of, of, uh, this, um, uh, Jesus or this archangel figure being preexistent to like everything being, uh, you know, the, uh, what, what Philo and both Philo and Paul say, uh, that everything was created through this archangel person, right. Uh, with Paul being Jesus and Philo being the logos, uh, everything was created through them. And so, um, what we have is this revolutionary syncretism with Judaism and other pagan beliefs. And so what we have is just a sort of a gradual development of the, a certain sect of Judaism that believes that the Messiah has already come, died, resurrected, and absolved sins. And um, you, uh, uh, one, one piece of, uh, a good piece of evidence for this is actually a lost gospel that we only know about because of Irenaeus in the second century. Um, Irenaeus talks about this sect that believes that um, Jesus came, uh, suffered, and died in silence. Like nobody knew that Jesus had come and done any of that. The only indication that they were given was when Jesus revealed himself after his resurrection. And so we've got Irenaeus saying that, and then we've got Paul, you know, earlier in the first century, uh, talking about how this the celestial being. Uh, Jesus was giving him all of these different visions. Even when he talks about the Lord's Supper, which a lot of people misidentify as the Last Supper, but it's uh, Paul identifies it as the Lord's Supper. Uh, even then, the in I forget which I think it's in one of the Corinthians, but um, when um, Paul is describing this Lord's Supper, he says that he received it in the exact same way that he had received everything else, and that would be through a vision of Jesus. And so I, I, I think that uh, Jewish Christians, which would be the first Christians, the Jewish Christians were a sect of Jews that developed slowly due to this syncretism with uh, um, Judaism and surrounding pagan and Hellenistic ideas. Interesting. So I just went to um, John, the, um, the first uh, John, which is the last gospel. And I'm just going to read out the um, start of that. Um, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Mm -hmm. He was with God in the beginning through him. All things were made without him. Nothing was made that he um, that has been made in him was life and life um, was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
And then in verse 6, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So it's interesting that there's like this delineation between like what it's describing as Jesus there and what it's describing as John, like a man. John's just right. John's man. Um, it's interesting. I never I never picked that up until you just mentioned it then um, about, about, about John. Um, so, okay, so we've gone through Paul um, and we've touched a little bit on the gospel. So what were the gospel writers doing? Were they trying to uh, personify this um, this celestial being in a context? Were they trying to deceive people, or were they kind of writing a story that was um, like trying to personify this celestial being to be like a real figure, like Hercules or something? What mm -hmm. What do you think they were doing? Well, um, I, I guess I'll, I'll answer this with, with a question to maybe get you to think. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that the um, whoever wrote like the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, do you think that they were trying to deceive like the Jews when they wrote about the Garden of Eden or they wrote about Noah's flood or anything like that? Um, oh, so that's a good. That's a very good question, because I don't think because Dr. Josh got me on a whole other jam with all that stuff. He, he mentioned how Exodus uh, no, Genesis of 1 to 11 is a polemic against Mesopotamia. But mm -hmm. it's stories that are fictional, but they serve a purpose as a, as a as a real story um, to push against push back against uh, Mesopotamian myth. So, so yeah, you. I mean, I don't. I well, I, I obviously don't believe there was a global flood. Um, I don't believe in Adam and Eve or anything like that. Um, well, so yeah, but the, but yeah, the, the big... were, were they trying to deceive people? Probably not. No. No, yeah. Just... So I, I don't I don't think that the gospel writers were trying to deceive anybody. What I think that they were trying to do was tell stories about Jesus that were to communicate the tenets of Christianity um, and, and also give, uh, you know, this sort of uh, uh, maybe a, a little bit of a historical air about it that, you know, uh, if, uh, you know, in telling these stories, it was meant, and even Jesus in Mark, uh, I can't remember the chapter, but in Mark, um, Jesus explicitly says that these are parables that um, only the initiated will understand the meaning of these parables. To the outside world, they'll just seem like stories. And this is kind of like a, a like a, a, an internal admission right there that, you know, um, and, and th this comes from like a John Dominic Cross and uh, he, he, he has this fantastic book called the power of parable where uh, you know, he puts forth that the, the gospels themselves are just gigantic parables um, that are meant to teach lessons uh, to the Christians. And it's very easy to see. And so like um, with, with the gospel writers, they were trying to show that this Jesus was definitely the Messiah. Uh, they were trying to show that he was a prophet of God and that, you know, the things that he would have done here on earth, if there was any kind of like historical mention about him, uh, would have been in line with what was already in the Old Testament. Because like mm -hmm. all nearly all the miracles in the New Testament have roots in the old Testament, uh, every, every single one of them. So, uh, it, it seems like this is a, a, a giant, uh, explanation as to why Jesus provides the salvation that he does, why Jesus is considered, uh, the last prophet of God and why Jesus is essentially the Messiah. And so, I feel like it's each gospel is told to fit a certain 
uh, group of Christians because it, it, it's representative of at least four different groups of Christians that had different beliefs about Jesus and what he did. Uh, you know, so, well, supposedly with his, uh, maybe not necessarily historically, because we even have like um, uh, origin and uh, early church, other early church fathers that admit that these stories about Jesus are the exact same as other pagan gods that exist. They call them the uh, the sons of Zeus, uh, I believe. Um, and so that you you have them admitting that yeah, this Jesus is the exact same, but he's better. And he's better because he's Jewish. And so just like you were saying with the, you know, the first bit of Genesis being a pushback against, you know, these other cultures, I think that the Gospels are a pushback against these other pagan religions, all the other religions out there that, uh, you know, puts Jesus in this very um, elevated position of being better than all these other ones because he was Jewish and, you know, and, and so it was just a way of spreading the religion and showing that they are far better than the other religions that are out there. Interesting. I, 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 one of the, one of the biggest points against Christianity, in my opinion, and this would work for, um, mythicism as well, is that we have, we do have historians at the time, right? Writing at the time of Jesus's life, um, is that true? I'm, I'm, I know we have Josephus. He was after the fact, but yeah. we do have writings well, of. Well, so Paul, um, and I know a lot of, this is where I push back with a lot of mythicists uh, in that, uh, you know, a lot of mythicists will say, well, you can't use the Bible to justify the Bible, but you know, you have to take into consideration that the Bible is a collection of books. Like it's a collection of writings. And so Paul is in the Bible, but he is our earliest indication of a Jesus uh, figure, right? So he's he's our earliest one that's writing at the time. And then uh, as far as secular historians go, I believe that Josephus comes right after that. And then uh, everything else occurs in the second century and onward. So mm-hmm. um, we don't have much as far as like first century goes, but um, – I, I don't think that uh, that other other than Christians themselves, there's no secular historian that uh, really mentions Jesus in the first century, you know, with the caveat of, of Josephus that maybe we'll go into here in a minute. So is but there were historians, right? Like there, there had to be there was some there were people writing stuff down. Oh, yes. Well, as far as people writing stuff down that typically historians now would look to in order to. Uh, know certain things about history. There were definitely a lot of people that were writing at that time that should have noted something um, mm. uh, about about Jesus that that had reasons to mention Jesus unambiguously. Yeah. But we don't actually have like any uh, like all of those authors seem to not reference any kind of of Jesus that we know. Because the biggest, the biggest thing for me is, you know, Matthew talks about when Jesus died. At the moment, the curtains of the temple were torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life and came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the city and appeared to many people. So yeah. technically they're not zombies because zombies <laughs> have to be brought up by black magic, I think, but... They sound an awful lot like zombies and they appeared to many people and no historian wrote these down. Like to right. me, this is 
this is a lot more i mean they were writing like trivial things at the time like you know who owed someone money or whatever like just random stuff well yeah so so there there is there is one particular argument where people try to suggest that that's a real historical event at least the the eclipse and the uh uh the earthquake and that's uh through um thallus and uh phlegon i believe are the two sources but the problem is with those particular sources they're not extant to us now and it's actually like the third hand reporting of it uh because mm. actually somebody reciting julius africanus who was reciting those those guys but in any case um the the actual sources don't uh, don't put the earthquake as happening anywhere near uh you know the time in which it would have plus we don't have any empirical evidence like in the geology that there was an earthquake at that time uh but some uh i, I believe it's thallus that mentions an eclipse but even within that uh that source itself it talks about how this doesn't make sense because there would not have been an eclipse at this time and mm. they never tie the eclipse to happening at a specific point in history they just sort of ambiguously talk about an eclipse so there's no there's no real good evidence that any of that happened but i do want to mention that um a little bit of a fun fact here did you know that mike lacona lost two jobs and uh speaking engagements because he he said that that was just apocalyptic imagery he wasn't even denying that it was it was uh, isn't real like he was just like oh that's apocalyptic imagery and they're like fired fucker there's a few there's a few um the few uh christians that um christian like scholars and or 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 preachers that i have uh uh, some um you know respect for i think mike lacona um engages with things kind of like i you have to compare them to what they're up against right like when you've got ken hovind on one side and you've got mike lacona on the other side like i'm going for mike there each time he's just um he's (laughs) he's got some you know he's got a lot more reasonable than um, a lot um uh yeah so so in regards to mythicism um i have a lot of questions from my discord and i was wondering if we could jump um through some of those now um, oh sure because they, they they it talks about like some of the things we mentioned like josephus and things like that and if this kind of kind of blends into some more talking points that's totally fine as well uh but um so do you think so this is uh from one of my uh discord mods Jacob, do you think historians Tacitus and Josephus, due to their positive views towards Christ or negative views towards Nero, displayed bias in their records of Jesus's existence? Well, so I, for me, like those particular references, uh, you don't really even have to get into like their biases or anything like that. Uh, so taking each of those one at a time with Tacitus, um, I think that, you know, you, I, I could, I could take Tacitus at face value. Like, yeah, sure, he's talking about Christ or whatnot. But the only thing that that tells us is that there were Christians in Rome in 64 CE, and so I don't see how that should affect mythicism in any kind of way. Um, it does talk about stuff that you find in the uh, New Testament. But the problem with that is, is that Tacitus was actually in conversation. He was like a pen pal with Pliny the Younger, who was busy interrogating Christians in the next, uh, you know, the next country over or whatnot. So he could have easily gotten that information from Pliny the Younger uh, in his correspondence with him. So 
the best that Tacitus gives us, and I'm not, and this isn't just me pulling this out of my ass. Um, I'm actually getting this from Robert Van Vorst, who's a Christian New Testament scholar. Um, there's no way to know where Tacitus is getting this information. So there's no way that we can say that it's independent of the New Testament. Considering that Tacitus was writing in the second century, he probably had three, if not all four of the major gospels available to him. So he, uh, in one way or another, either directly or indirectly through Pliny, uh, he could have gotten that information in some kind of way. So without a way to distinguish uh, what his sources were for that information, there's no way that we can use that as like uh, direct evidence that Jesus existed. And then with Josephus, obviously I'm in the camp that thinks that both of the um, instances in Josephus are interpolated. I think that the uh, Testimonium Flavianum, the big ad for Jesus in uh, Book 18, is uh, a malicious interpolation, um, either by um, Eusebius or Eusebius's mentor, either one. Uh, but it doesn't show up in the his, uh, history record until Eusebius mentions it. So uh, it had to be inserted at some point right there. And there's been multiple scholars that have noticed that the structure of it is different than Josephus and uh, the way that Josephus writes about everything else. So there's a lot of, I've got a whole like clipped video on, on my clips channel where I kind of go through extensively all of the arguments against it. Um, but okay. uh, so, Huh? So, so, so I'll link, that in, I'll link that in the description. So just for my audience sakes, um, and also a bit of my sake, um, the, so Josephus is a first century, um, historian who was, who was born around the time the, um, traditional view of Jesus died. So he was born around 30 CE or something. Oh, oh geez, I can't be getting it wrong. Let's forget about that. Forget about that. Blank that. Cut that. He was a first century historian, right? A secular historian. Mm. And, a lot of um, people mentioned that Josephus, a lot of, a lot of people say that Josephus, um, he was a Jew, but he mentioned that he mentioned Jesus as the Messiah, which a Jew would never do. Um, so, uh, you know, cause then he wouldn't be a Jew. So um, he'd be a Christian. So is that the only arguments um, for those um, scriptures, those parts of his uh, history books? Um this rump, sorry, this is catching up with me. Um, the rump is catching up with me. So, is that are that the only sections that um, that are not like? Uh, is that the only reason we don't classify them as like we classify them as being injected into the um, scripts um, after the fact? Oh no, uh, that that's not the only reason. Uh, I, in fact, the most popular uh, apologetic for the testimony in Flavianum is that it's partially interpolated. So basically, you take out all of the really Christian parts and you replace them with non-Christian sort of references, and that's probably what Josephus wrote. But the problem with that is, is that we don't have any evidence that that actually existed at any point in history. Um, and so uh, not, not, uh, but the reason why we know this is that, you know, there's some people that say that there's a Syriac and Arabic version 
uh, of of it that have the that that has the original that preserves the original. But um, Alice Wheely has actually shown that both of those versions are ultimately copied from Eusebius's version. So those are actually later redactions. So the only version that we know of is the one with the very highly Christianized version uh, verses in it. But that still isn't what convinces people that it was interpolated or inserted into Josephus's work. Um, stuff like verb usage, the structure of the passage, uh, the fact that you can uh, the passage is awkwardly worked into that particular section. So, like if you remove that section, the uh, passages around it seem to flow into one another seamlessly. And that's one of the indications that you can that you can generally use to determine if a passage was in, interpolated into a piece of work. Because if if it is, then the past the all the stuff around it should flow together fine, like it was never there. And that's exactly what you see in Josephus. That's of course not a nail in the coffin or anything like that. What I would consider to be the nail in the coffin is the fact that the structure of that particular passage follows along with the Amos Road story in Luke. Uh, pretty well. Um, the fact that the the grammar and structure of it in general is different from uh, Josephus's surrounding work um, is is a pretty big nail in the coffin coffin for me. Um, the fact that uh, nobody mentions Josephus writing about this, even when Origen was specifically looking for references to Jesus. Uh, him not mentioning Josephus talking about Jesus in this light, even if it's not the highly Christianized version of it, it's it's a more Jewish version of it. Um, the fact that Origen complains about Josephus not mentioning Jesus is kind of a big nail for me. So um, there's there's a lot of different reasons to consider it to be interpolated. And um, like I said, that video that I'm going to get. Uh, to David to put in the in the description uh, has like several different reasons along with the scholars that have put them out there and references to where you can go and look up the stuff for yourself. Um, that that's gonna that'll be in that video. Awesome. Um, and uh, first of all, I want everyone to go subscribe to Godless Engineer. He just pumps out content after content after content on all this stuff. A lot of it goes over my head, but maybe it doesn't go over your head. So go subscribe to Godless Engineer. But um, my am I understanding that the first that that we don't have we don't have the uh, the original copy of Josephus's work, right? I, I think the the copy that is extant to us now comes from like the tenth century or something like that. The tenth century, I think. Yeah. Whoa, that's okay. I thought maybe you was like that's that's okay. That's quite late. Um, okay. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, Next question. What would convince you that the Bible is accurate? Oh, let's see. What what would convince me that the Bible's accurate? At, at this I point, guess, I guess this isn't this isn't necessarily a mythicist question. This is more of just broadly. Right. Um, I mean, I really don't I, I I mean, you would have to upend all of history in order to make the Bible fit in history. So yeah. uh, unless we we found like something that totally reverses everything we know about history. I don't think that there'd be anything that could change my mind about like the Bible and its truth. Um, Cause there's, there's very obviously some things that are not there. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are not true. If you're talking about <laughs> like the gospels, no. uh, you know, specifically about Jesus's life. Um, 
the the problem that I have with the uh, one of the major problems I have with the gospels is that they don't cite their sources. So like we don't have any sources for like where they got this information. If we could somehow find like an authentic firsthand account of Jesus and the things that he did, uh, that would change my mind. But the problem is, is that that would be really hard because you're looking at a very, very small time frame. Because if you think about it, Jesus supposedly died in the 30s, right? And then you have the 70s is when the Gospels are being written. So you've only got a 40-year time span right there where you have to find some kind of like written uh, piece of work that um, describes this Jesus that's totally independent from like Paul and other Christians at the time. So it's it's a very difficult thing to find, but that would that would have to be the criteria for like to to change my opinion doesn't, on that. I mean, doesn't John mention like these are these are written from first hand accounts? Like I've I've talked to people who were there. Sorry, well, when I say John, I, I mean the anonymous author of the book of John. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, see the problem the problem is though is that when you do textual analysis on the book of John. Um, you have a very blatant fact that John is using the other gospels in order to create his narrative because uh, I, I, uh, I don't know how you reconcile this, but you know that there's two totally different Lazaruses uh, in the gospels. No, I, I don't. Well, I don't believe in any of the Bible. So I don't, I just like, I, th I think a lot of it is just, um, you know, it like like I think a lot of it is just people um, not making up stuff, but people like recording stuff they heard, and then you know details get wrong. I well, didn't know well, that there were two different Lazarus. So, oh yeah, well okay. So, uh, do you recall the Lazarus and Luke? How it's a parable about you know uh, Lazarus is um uh he's 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 going to or he's in hell or something like that and he wants to be saved but he can't be saved and he can't like uh i can't remember what it is he's like in the bosom of, of abraham or something like that he wants like um, water to be put in his tongue or something maybe i don't know that in i can't remember the exact uh parable but in luke it's a parable about this poor man named lazarus right but then John comes along and he doesn't like that story. And so he rewrites Lazarus to be a physical resurrection because in the Lazarus story in Luke, uh, it, it's basically, there's, there's no miracle that I could do that would convince people, you know, that I'm the prophet or that, that would mm -hmm. convince people to believe in me. But, uh, the, the exact opposite message is in John. Uh, John uh, uses the resurrection of Lazarus to convince everybody immediately about his prophet status and, and how he's the prophet of God. And so uh, th this is this is one instance where it's there's a direct connection between the two where John is refuting these prior gospels. So uh, could, uh, could John have gotten eyewitness testimony considering that he was most likely written in the second century? I doubt it. But at the same time, um, just like with the other gospels, if you have firsthand accounts, then why do you need to copy other accounts in order to mm. create your account? You know, mm. so uh, I, 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 all of the gospels, well, Luke's gospel, uh, and then I guess maybe John's gospel claims uh, to have eyewitness accounts, but uh, both of them claim it, but they never really give any kind of source 
like indications of, of who these people were, why they would have been good sources to use in the first place. So there's nothing that we can say about them, just that they claim that they're eyewitness accounts. But then there's that conflict with copying the other gospels. So it kind of it's kind of weird. Interesting. Um, is it is it possible to prove or disprove the historical existence of Jesus anymore? Due to the gospels being far too religiously centric and the historical records being far too away and not accurate and or detailed enough. Well, see, that's, that's where the real interesting conversation exists. Um, and, and typically uh, it's between uh, a couple of atheists that the interesting conversation happens because, you know, it, we, we can't say for a hundred percent certain whether or not Jesus existed. Um, bet, like, like the, I think that the hardest position that you could take is agnosticism on it, right? Like, I just don't know because we don't have good records. We don't have any kind of good indications. Uh, and you can make sense of the evidence that we have given the idea that Jesus was historical and given the idea that he was celestial. So there's not really any kind of, of idea, um, uh, you know, as to whether or not he was historical is at least not in, in a very, um, you know, uncertain way, right? Uh, like, or, or a certain way. We, we can't be certain about it. But uh, that's where the interesting conversation exists because then you're having to try to explain the evidence that we have and you have to come out as either being, well, he was more likely to be historical or he was more likely to be mythical and this celestial figure. Um, so it, it, it really depends there, like which side you land on. Uh, as soon as you can get past like all the gospel nonsense and everything like that, when you're, when you're dealing with the nitty gritty history of it, uh, you just really can't say for sure. So unless we find new information, I don't think that we'll really be able to determine whether or not he was historical. Like as far as a hundred percent, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what would convince you? Um, sorry, what books would you recommend? Oh, okay, definitely. Um, so there are some really good books. Obviously, Richard Carrier's on the history of Jesus. It's a it's a thick read. Uh, it's a pretty thick boy. Um, it is a thick but, boy. <laughs> Very yeah. Thick boy. Uh, so that's a good one. Um, but as far as like uh, something that's uh, a little bit more pop level, uh, you know, Carrier has his new book, Jesus from Outer Space, uh, that uh, is, is very pop level. It doesn't have all the nitty gritty details as on the history of Jesus does, but it does have him explaining the whole idea in very layman's terms. So there's that. Then there's also another good book to get is Randall Helms' Gospel Fictions. And this is more about how the Gospels were created using the Old Testament scriptures. And they go through like all the miracles. They go through information about Jesus and how that's lifted from the Old Testament. Uh, Randall Helms does a pretty good job of that. There are some things in there that are not exactly supported uh, by the evidence it's, it's more speculative but you can uh, you can definitely tell when he's being more speculative than he is more empirical um because like when he's referencing like the connection between the new testament and the in the old testament he actually has quotes that he pulls out and he shows you how the greek is exactly the same here and here kind of thing so um you can easily determine that um but uh you've also got um uh david fitzgerald is a good book to get started with uh he's got Got four books currently on the topic of mythicism. Um, he's got his first one nailed, which kind of introduces you to the topic. Um, 
And then he's got uh, his three books, which um, uh, fun fact, I did the cover art for his three books, uh, Jesus mything in action. Um, I did. Yeah, I did the cover art, like uh, all, uh, even the even the back cover and everything like that for that. Uh, but he's got three books there that kind of explain it. The first book in that series is actually really important because uh, he does like an independent study of the um, degree granting institutions in the United States and shows that, uh, you know, a majority of them require statements of faith in order to either go there or work there. And so that's that's a pretty big compromise on the academic integrity of the field in general. Um, so it, it's uh, that that's where you can find that. Um, and uh, let's see, uh, Dominic Cro- uh, uh, John Dominic Crossan's uh, Power of Parable. That's a really good book if you're looking to uh, see how the gospels are constructed as long parables. Uh, he's got a lot of great stuff in there. There's there's so many books out there that I could recommend, but uh, as as far as the ones that you'll that anybody can kind of pick up and sort of read, those are the ones that I'd probably go to. Awesome. There's a, yeah, the, the, all the links will be in the description uh, for anyone who's uh, interested. Um, there's also did you mention the because you mentioned when we had a conversation, you mentioned a book called questioning the historicity of Jesus. Is that another good one? Yeah, it is a good one, but it's a little unattainable because it's marketed towards university libraries and stuff. So it's like $200 (laughs) or more. I I think I was going to buy it and I was like, Oh, it's a little, it's a little too much. Uh, but yeah. I, I will say that the, the best thing about um, Raphael's book is that he he foregoes like all of the apologetics about the historicity of Jesus. Right. And he and he focuses in on the most recent defense of the historical Jesus from an atheist, which is Bart Ehrman. And Bar- mm-hmm. but, but, but the problem is, is that Bart Ehrman employs a lot of dubious tactics in order to make his case. And that's what Raphael Ataster really highlights really well in that book is how dubious the case that Bart Ehrman makes actually is. And so it, it's really good for that. But I definitely would not suggest buying it for two hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. OK, fair enough. Um, well, links in the description if anyone wants to buy it for two hundred dollars. But, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, so I've got a couple of last quick questions that are kind of a bit fun. Um, well, the t- the, there's there's two that are kind of serious, and then one that's just fun. Okay. okay. So re- regarding so this is a bit different. This is similar to the one we just had, but a bit different. Regarding mythicism, what if anything would change your mind? What if anything would change my mind? Uh, like I said, you know, finding some kind of independent account of Jesus that exists prior to the Gospels being written and uh, we can verify is independent, you know, from uh, all other like Christian writings at the time. Uh, I think that that would be a really good start. I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, that that would at least probably push me onto the side of, of most likely hist- uh, history. Uh, historicity uh but other other than that like uh just finding one piece of information that could only exist because jesus was a historical figure uh is is uh, and, and you know finding that independent account would be an example of that um the the, the one thing that or w- at least one thing that could only exist if jesus was a historical figure and just giving you an example like with uh julius caesar crossing the rubicon 
Um, there's a lot of things in history that just simply wouldn't have happened unless Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. And so uh, if you take Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon out, then you don't have an explanation for why all those other things happened. And Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon explains everything uh, perfectly. So um, if we could find something like Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon uh, for Jesus in that like these subsequent events just simply wouldn't have happened at all if Jesus had been a historical person. Um, and I don't think that we actually have that piece of information right now. Like I think that everything that came after Jesus supposedly died or whatever, um, it makes sense on a celestial figure just as much as it makes sense on a historical figure. But if we could find that one piece of information that was, you know, um, wholly predicated on him being a historical figure, then, uh, I would, I would be swayed towards the historicist side. Awesome. Okay. Um, very similar again, but regarding it, this is much broader regarding your God belief. So this is not just Christian God, but any God creator of the universe. What if anything would change your mind? Okay. Uh, it's a good question. Um, uh, I think that uh, typically what I say is that we would need to find, you know, so something that could um, only be explained by a suspension of the natural order of reality. So like, uh, which a lot of people would interpret that as being a miracle. I don't think it necessarily has to be a miracle per se, but we would just need to be able to determine that for one thing, uh, the natural order of reality uh, isn't as uniform as we've known it to be so that it can be interrupted uh, sporadically uh, and uh, ra uh, randomly. And um, if, if we can somehow prove that, that that happens, then I think that that would get me closer to believing that a God could exist. Um, but in order to prove any certain definition of God, uh, you would have to do like a lot of work, like uh, in order to prove that a specific God exists. Because I don't think that I'm very hard atheist. Um, Gnostic atheist on all the current definitions of God. So it had to be some kind of, you know, definition of God that we just simply don't have right now. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, and this is the last, this is a fun question. Um, Cause obviously <laughs> as an atheist, as a, as a heathen, you probably believe that when you die, that's it, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you probably go to the same place you were before your birth for the last you know, 13.8 billion years. You probably go to the same place that a flame goes when you blow out a candle. Um, so, but if you could choose an afterlife and then it would immediately become true if you chose it, what would you choose mm -hmm. from any religion? From any religion? Mm. Uh, okay. So have you, have you seen the movie, The Invention of Lying? Yeah. Yep. Okay. In that, uh, Ricky Gervais, you know, has everybody believing that you get a mansion when you go to heaven, right? Yeah. I would choose that heaven, like just the heaven, <laughs> the heaven where I've got a mansion and it's just like, you know, I do whatever I want, you know, for eternity. I'm up there playing video games or doing whatever in the fuck, you know, with my family and everything like that. Like I'm just, I'm just up there, you know, relaxing, being all, I guess, fresh princey about it. Like if, if I could choose a heaven, it would probably be that. Uh, or if not a mansion, just, I guess, living out eternity here with, with uh, my wife, KC, and just uh, not having to work 
if I could just fuck off from work for eternity, that would be heaven, actually. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Deep Drinks podcast, uh, John. Uh, it's been awesome to have you on. Uh, everyone, make sure you go check out um, John's channel, Godless Engineer. Uh, have you got a clips channel as well? Is that correct? I heard you before. Oh, yeah. It- so it's 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 just called Godless Engineer Shorts, I think, because I had yeah. envisioned it to be like those shorts, the vertical video, like one minute yeah. clips, but I just ended up putting like clips of my actual content on it. So it's yeah. just Godless Engineer Shorts. Yeah. And do you have any um, like recommended debates or videos that people um, should watch if they want to learn more about you or what you do? Uh, Well, so my Kent Hovind debate that I did uh, is actually pretty good. And it's the origin story of the whale dick, uh, the whale (laughs) penis uh, uh, meme that we have on the channel. Uh, So it's got a great moment in it where, where Kent Hovind calls me a pervert and everything. So that's, that debate's pretty good. Um, but, uh, you know, pretty much any of my debates that I've done, I mean, uh, I, I, I would definitely, uh, tell people to watch, uh, cause you get a, you get a sense of, of my personality in them. Um, especially the Kent Hovind one, because I don't take Kent Hovind seriously. At no all, one so. who does like, who, who I does? like, I, I'm surprised that anyone takes him seriously. Like, uh, um, <laughs> I'm I'm still I'm still working on how I'm going to meme like through a debate with him because I really want to debate him but I've just got to work out how am I going to troll him through the debate because obviously there's no content that comes from it besides just having a good laugh. Um, right. Uh, so I guarantee you he'll start talking about how whales fuck underwater, okay? <laughs> it same it never fails for whatever reason if you notice what? it and yeah, whenever he starts talking about evolution and especially vestigial limbs he will always pull a whale dick out of his back pocket. Okay. He'll talk about how they've got a 15 foot penis and how they just sort of wiggle it around in the darkness down there, hoping to, to, you know, get some. And uh, I don't know why he brings it up every time, but he does. <laughs> oh, my favorite thing um, is, uh, Dr. Josh doing the not Kent Hoven like raps and stuff like that. Like, if, <laughs> yeah. if I'm like having the worst day of my life and like watch that, well, my name is Kent Hoven calling Dr. T-Rex. I'm, I, I just lose it. And he's sort of, like, throat, <laughs> his throat clears and stuff. I love it I'm, so much. Um, I'm, I'm here to help. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so good. Oh, well, anyway, thanks so much, John, for coming on. This has been an, an, an amazing interview. Um, I've learned so much about mythicism. I still feel like I've got many questions. So I'm going to go to your channel to um, learn more about this channel, um, learn more about those questions that I have, and I'm sure everyone else will as well. Thank you for coming on, and I'll see you next time. All right. See everybody later. <laughs>